Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Tim Michael, we will be discussing ways to tighten case timelines to help achieve justice sooner for our clients. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals and trial co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome back to the show, Tim. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking a little bit about how to be efficient in cases. And as we talk about that, one of the acronyms that we've come across is, as our firm has gone through the evolution of trying to be better about how we approach the business of law is what is known as the HOPE, the head of process efficiency. Some people also refer to it as the, the DOPE, the director of process efficiency. And whether willingly or not, you have been given anointed with the title of hope in the office. Can you describe a little bit about when you wear that hat, the role that you've played in terms of creating processes, looking at efficiency, other ways that you've taken on this mantle? Yes. Over two years ago now, you and Marianne came to me and had mentioned this firm's been around for a little while, but a lot of what we do is kind of an oral history. If I needed to figure out how we like to do something, I oftentimes would have to go to Miles Cooper or go to another coworker and say, how would you usually handle this? But that in and of itself is not efficient. It takes time out of your day. It takes time out of other people's day. And so the idea being, you guys came to me and said, we want to take all of this oral history and get it down in a written documentation. We're calling them processes. And ideally, anybody could come into this firm, go into this manual of processes and kind of figure out how to do things the Cooper's way. And it takes a lot of time and effort to gather all of that information in a way that you can digest and understand and learn from. But it has been an incredibly useful and helpful exercise for us. I agree that it's been an incredibly useful exercise. I think as people start hearing this and, and hearing about how challenged it can be to create processes, I feel the pitch for the benefit needs to come very shortly thereafter. And on the benefit side, I'm a big believer in processes and in checklists. And some of the checklist comes from, and I'm going to make a pitch for a book called uh, The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And background, Atul Gawande was tasked with helping reduce surgical errors by the World Health Organization. And as he went through this process, he came across ways that people improved outcomes and the simplest way was checklists. And so as we build our, our processes, one of the things that we build into our processes are checklists so that while it may be something that we are in essence on autopilot, when you serve a complaint, you also want to make sure you serve the summons and you want to make sure that you serve the statement of damages and you want all these little things that become so routine that you're not likely to forget them. But the best way to not forget them is to make sure that you check every step along the way. Absolutely. And the benefit of that is very few dropped balls when they're checklists and processes, and they improve the efficiency side of things. And I think that's where we're going to be spending a lot of our conversation today 
on the efficiency side and where one can start tightening those timelines so that at the end of the day, we want to make sure that a case that could be done in a year doesn't take four years. Right. That's one of the important things about processes or what I find most useful about some of our processes are the ones that kind of do give that direction on timeline. We have processes that are kind of more, I don't want to say general, but this is how you would complete such a task. But we also have other processes that say, this is what you're trying to do. And here is the exact timeline that we like to get it done by. By X days after being served this, we want to have completed this project. That has been a huge help in actually keeping people on track and making sure we're we're meeting these goals that we have as a firm. And I want to be clear when we talk about why do we want a case to only be a year instead of three years, four years, however long it is. And it's not because we're rushing or cutting corners. It's because the longer a case takes for a client, the more, particularly ones where they're relying on that money to be able to move forward with their lives. We want to get that money to them sooner rather than later. The other piece is the longer a file sits around in the office, the more touches it gets, the less efficient it is. It's not going to generate as much revenue for the firm. So it's a both and for the client and for the business. Yes, absolutely. With that as backdrop, where do you want to start? Medical records, liens, the timeline from signing a client in terms of a rep agreement? Honestly, we can start from the top rep agreements and then kind of go from there because there are intricacies with each med records and liens. So yeah, we can start with rep agreements. Okay, well, take us away. Where do we go from there in terms of an efficiency perspective? We have a pretty efficient intake department. We have our separate intake department and potential new clients speak with our intake specialist. After the intake specialist gather that information and we make a determination as a firm as to whether we are able to assist this client or potential client, we send over a rep agreement, usually within, you know, couple hours of making that decision. And as soon as that is returned by the client, it gets fully executed by the partners and is immediately sent back to the client. So this usually happens just within a couple of hours. So now the client has a fully executed rep agreement. And in that email back to the client with the fully executed rep agreement, the intake specialist introduces the client to their handling attorney or case manager and you're away you go. And sometimes we can go from a potential new client calling in to having them signed with a fully executed representation agreement within a couple of hours. And I think where this is important and the takeaway for, say, a solo who may not have a large department, this is equally doable when you are running a smaller firm. And the reason I say this is the old school method is oftentimes a paper representation agreement that gets mailed out to somebody who then signs it, sends it back. The whole evolution takes days, sometimes weeks. And in that time, the case is not moving forward. So the takeaway for a solo is whether you use Adobe Sign or DocuSign or any other digital format, you can set this up. There's a quote I've used, I think, several times on the podcast, probably will use again. And it's been attributed to Abraham Lincoln as we don't have time to sharpen the axe, we're too busy chopping wood. And this is one of those ones where if you stop to take the time to transfer your rep agreement into a digital signature platform, one, clients are super appreciative because the vast majority now, if they can sign it on their phone with their finger, oh my God, they're going to be so much happier. Yep. 
And the other piece is it's just way more efficient. You're not having that paper getting sloughed back and forth or having them, you know, an injured person have to figure out how to print something out and then scan it and send it back to you. Yeah, I'm laughing a little bit because you mentioned the paper rep agreement and I realize in talking about sending the rep agreement, I didn't mention digital. And that shows you what I've grown used to is everything's digital. It's probably been over a year since we were occasionally dealing with these paper rep agreements and it did slow things down. And the worst would be, you know, sometimes you send out, a lot of times the client would ask for a paper copy to be sent to them because they didn't have access to a printer. So then you're waiting 10 days and then they take 10 days to fill it out. Sometimes you're waiting four to six weeks to get even back to the rep agreement that slows things down a lot. So yeah, when you're just firing things off electronically, the turnaround time is often really fast. As we're talking about laying the groundwork for getting things going quickly at the beginning, it's where checklists come in too, in terms of making sure that client also receives medical release forms, general release forms, the client questionnaire so that we can get all the background data. Other things that might be specific to the case, like photos of the injury or photos of damage to a property or a bicycle. I think this is a good segue into liens. Okay. And this is a newer thing that we have been doing, but it was an efficiency that we had not been taking advantage of. And so now our intake specialist, part of that intake checklist is not just the rep agreement and the authorization form and the HIPAA form. We now need a copy of the driver's license we asked for and a copy of your health insurance card front and back. Because in the past, sometimes we got that information through the client questionnaire, which then the client, you know, might take a month to return because, you know, these clients oftentimes are calling in right after they've been involved in this incident. They're not taking the time to fill out a questionnaire. They're taking the time to recover um, right now. And we get that. And that's why we say, hey, here's the questionnaire. Take your time. Focus on yourself. But what that often means is we weren't getting health insurance information from them until they returned it, you know, four or six weeks later. And then you're now four to six weeks behind on maybe reporting a lien. For us, and there are obviously situations in which you can't follow this procedure, but in the vast majority of cases now, what we can do is we can get the health insurance information and we can just report the case to the lien or to the insurance company right then and there. And then you can kind of just forget about that piece because you've done it early on enough. And usually within 30 to 60 days, they'll send you a letter and you can start moving forward on the lien. That's been really helpful because there's nothing more frustrating than getting a settlement offer and then realizing, wait a minute, we don't know how much we owe the lien holder yet because we haven't figured this whole piece out. So the simple things like asking for the health insurance card up front also expedites the lien process because then you know I've got that information as soon as the client signed with our firm and we can kind of move forward with that piece. As we talk about the liens, the next logical area for me to talk about in terms of Achilles heels on cases are medical records. Take us through the medical records side of things and whether there's what one might describe as like a default setting. Like, do I get these records, you know, the emergency room, ambulance, fire department, do I get those immediately off the bat? And then for longer treatment arcs, are there ways that we have follow-up systems to make sure that, you know, six months out, nine months out, whenever the treatment is done, that we get those updated records? When we sign a client, one of the first questions that we ask are, where have you received medical treatment? And are you still receiving medical treatment? And that, that's an important note. And let me be clear, 
that's not something where we wait for the client questionnaire to come back, but that's data that's gathered early on yes. so that we can immediately get out and start getting on the path of getting records. Of course. And you had mentioned previously, one of our items on that intake checklist is a client questionnaire. That's where we gather a lot of the information. Sometimes those clients take a while to get the questionnaire back. They're focusing on their own recovery. Totally makes sense. But there are some pieces of information that I'll go to the client directly for rather than waiting for the questionnaire. And that is medical providers. And that is because the thing that takes the longest to get evidence-wise is medical records and medical bills. And you can be sitting there waiting for them for sometimes six plus months. And so the sooner you order them, the better off you are. So if I have a new client, I ask them, where have you treated and are you still treating? If a client has treated and finished treating somewhere, then go ahead, order those medical records and bills right away because they're done treating. You know, that is a complete set of records at our firm. This has been really helpful for us. We have a medical records clerk and his sole job is to collect and request and collect medical records and bills for our firm. That's super helpful because the medical record request industry is really complicated. There's a lot of different ways. Well, there are a lot of different providers out there and each of them ask for record requests in a different way. And having just kind of one person with all of that knowledge who knows the best way to get those records is very helpful. So anytime I know a client has finished treating at a facility, I can then let our medical records clerk know, hey, I would like the medical records and medical bills from this facility for these dates of service. And off he goes, he requests them, and then he lets me know when they're in, which is usually within 30 to 60 days. Now, there is sometimes the situation where the client will say, hey, I've treated here, but I have not finished treating. And oftentimes we'll wait to request those records until they've completed treatment because it's silly to order them, get in an incomplete set, and then two months later, order them again for the complete set. It, sometimes it's costly. Also, just time-wise, it's not worth it. There are a few instances where it's worth it, and that's when you need to take a look at the medical records to kind of help value the case or help get an idea of your client's injuries. But a lot of times, I wait until the client has completed treatment, and then I'll order those records and bills. I have heard of what has been referenced as a Kaiser hack in terms of being able to get all of a client's Kaiser records almost instantaneously without having to deal with Kaiser's Byzantine process. Yes. Can you describe that to our listeners? Because for those who aren't familiar with it, it can be a game changer for those clients who have Kaiser. I love Kaiser for this. And nowadays when I see a client come in and they say, I've treated with Kaiser, I am happy. And that was not the case a year or two ago. <laughs> so almost every patient at Kaiser has access to an online Kaiser portal. And if you just log into your online Kaiser portal, there is a request records file button and you can either request them for yourself or for a third party. And if you just go in and ask your client, so what I do is I've now drafted like a standard email, say, hey, would you mind logging into your Kaiser portal? Click this link and I kind of have some screenshots and say, click this link, type in this information, which says Cooper's LLP, send it here and just click submit. And within 24 to 48 hours, the entire file for the dates of service provided is sent directly to me. And that's been crazy helpful because there were times where I've waited 90 to 120 days for Kaiser records. And that really expedites that process. Does that also save the client money? 
It does. It does. Yeah. And um, because, yeah, you don't have to pay the Kaiser bill on the back end, which fortunately Kaiser records are usually pretty cheap, about $15, no matter the size of the set, but say it's 15 bucks. And I'm hoping we're going to see other providers start moving more in that direction. And another note I will add is sometimes, especially the clients that are like, what's a Kaiser portal? Or they get lost in the Kaiser portal. Sometimes I'll suggest, or you can provide me your username or password, or if you're uncomfortable with that, you can change your password and provide me with it. And then I will do it myself. And a lot of clients just provide me with their user and password because I can go in and have it done in 15 seconds and we're good to go. Very, very nice option provided by Kaiser. I figured that people would want to hear about this because I know it's something that now that we've found that piece, it's been very, very helpful. As we're talking about that, the other thing is I think we're seeing Stanford move in that direction, at least with billing, which is nice. Stanford Billing just announced uh, last month that they now have an online request portal for billing records where you used to have to physically mail in with a check a request. So I think we're finally seeing some of these providers come around with better online request portals. And in a few years when Amazon has acquired everything and it's all available on Amazon Web Services and there won't be anything scary with all of our records being owned by one monolithic Nothing company. At all. Yeah. yeah. I'm kidding a little bit, but you know, we are seeing that kind of movement. So maybe a few years from now, this records issue will be a bygone era. Yeah. Honestly, it kind of feels like the request system today is still 20, 30 years outdated. So the request system now is a Byzantine and part of having the benefit of having a specialist in the office who knows that Stanford needs this kind of a special way of handling things or this particular provider. I need to make sure I talk to so-and-so who's only in on Thursdays because so-and-so always gets the records out. But if you call the other person on Tuesdays, you have to follow up with them eight times before they actually get the thing done. I'm not making something up. No. These are actual examples of records issues. Absolutely. It is funny talking to the medical records clerk. His name's Ian. But Ian, Ian will tell you, you know, like you just learn these little tricks with each one. And yeah, you start to learn the people. But the medical records request process to me is the most frustrating part about my job because it's the one thing that it's just kind of hard to explain to a client. Your records are at this hospital a couple miles down the road from me. And I've been trying to get them for five months and I don't have them yet. And that's why we're still waiting to proceed with your case. And they're like, why can't you just go get them? Or, you know, and it's not that simple. It's so frustrating how hard it can be to get medical records sometimes. But if you stay on top of them and if you, if you know the ins and outs of each facility, you can learn how to speed these things up and hopefully speed up the case for your client. And that's the efficiency side. And that's where having... A person who's devoted to it or a good system in place where they're calendaring reminders. You know, I called so-and-so last Thursday. I need to make sure that I have it calendared so that I'm not having to remember, but you know, next Thursday on my calendar, it automatically pops up. I need to tickle this person again to try and get my file put to the top of the list. Yeah, I guess this did turn into my 10 minutes of complaining about the medical records request process, but yeah, that is the efficiency piece is that one person with that knowledge and going back to our processes. This is the way we're building this out because it's never smart to have one person with all the knowledge because what happens if Ian leaves? Who's going to handle our medical records tomorrow? So what we've done is we have a case management software with a contact um, book. And for each contact card for the provider, so let's say Zuckerberg, uh, San Francisco General Hospital, 
Um, if you click that contact card, you can look at the details and it'll say for medical records, here's how to request for billing records. Here's how to request. So while Ian does have the intimate knowledge, it is still available to the firm. And if I wanted to go and make the request, I could, but we still like to have Ian do it. And this goes back to oral traditions and somebody years ago referred to this to me as, as the Mack truck problem. If Ian is the only repository of knowledge and he suddenly decides to become a professional surfer or gets hit by a Mack truck, that's the Mack truck problem. Suddenly all of your oral tradition, all your, you know, ask Ian, ask Ian, ask Ian, all of that data, all of that information is gone. You don't want all of that repository and oral tradition and in a single person format. No, you sure do not. And it's been a work in progress building out this medical record information in our case management software, but it'll, it'll pay dividends eventually. Records kind of are what they are. The other piece that I feel is important to bring up from an efficiency perspective is the idea of once the records have come in, there are cases and there are cases. There are some cases where the, the treatment is not a lot of treatment and it's pretty easy to put that in chronologic order and it's pretty easy to figure out if a record is missing. There are other cases where, you know, somebody has complex injuries, it's got a long duration. Turning that into a chronology where the records are put in chronologic order from all of the providers, from the moment they're picked up by the ambulance to the moment their final PT visit occurs. When you put it into that cron, it serves two purposes. One, it allows you to audit because you can see where there's a missing record. There's a reference to having been sent to a neurologist by one person and you see that there's no neurology report and no neurology feedback. The other on the efficiency side, this comes to case costs. When you are using retained experts, if you give four different retained experts, an ortho, a neuro, a life care planner, and a vascular surgeon, 2000 pages of disorganized records from eight different providers, each one of those people charges anywhere from 500 to $1,500 per hour. The cost for them, not to mention the administrative hassle, it's not something that brings them joy and it's something that's going to drive up case costs versus giving somebody those same four experts, you give them chronologic record. All of a sudden, everyone's working off the same information base when they're writing the reports. You can even do it to the point where those are pre-tabbed as the exhibit numbers so that when they're referencing something, when you go to trial, it's actually that exhibit number that the person is referencing in their report or their analysis. Yeah. And that's something that we've really been striving to do is when a record comes in, it gets an exhibit number as soon as it comes in the door. And, uh, if that case ever goes to trial, that will be the exhibit number eventually down at trial. Of course, there are situations where that might change, but, um, that's the ultimate goal. I highlight this before we move off of the records piece, just on the efficiency side, because we're looking for efficiency across the board, keeping the cases moving more quickly for the client to get resolution sooner for them, but also keeping those costs as low as possible. Spend what you need to spend to win, but don't spend a penny more. Yeah, don't pay for four med crowds. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. As we move from records, what's the next place that you'd like to stop in terms of on the efficiency side? Well, so me personally, I'm pre-litigation case manager. So my, my work's a little different than the attorneys on the lit side. That said, you have done a lot of support between trial support or other feedback. Are there areas where you've cross platformed seen room for improvement on efficiency? 
if I'm on the lit side of things, I'm thinking I'm now going towards experts. Okay. So after you've got the medical records, the lien figured out, so we've got an idea of the damages here. Now we're getting closer to maybe trial. We've hired our experts. You know, they've prepared for Medcrons. Hopefully they've not prepared for Medcrons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But now it's about making sure we and our experts are ready to go to trial. And that is making sure that they have all the information that they need to do their job for the case. Because the worst is when you're five days out from an expert's depot and they go, oh, I haven't received any transcripts from blah, blah, blah. I never read the client's deposition. Yeah. Oh, you didn't <laughs> send it to me. Yeah. That is not a position you ever want to be in. Yeah. So that is what we've worked on is having a process where a hundred days out from trial, we confirm that everything that we intended to send to the expert has been sent over to the expert. And uh, if it is not, we make sure it's sent over as soon as possible. That is important. I'm going to take a step backward though. And I'm going to talk a little bit to the extent that you've been involved in this, great. Otherwise, I, I will chat a little bit about it. There is oftentimes a huge timeline gap in the time between you take a case in and the time that it gets filed. And there are two reasons for that. One is we do oftentimes like to run a case through pre-litigation. It, it helps get the records in. It helps get value done. It helps the insurance company set reserves. It gives a chance for perhaps an efficient result for the client if the carrier's stepping up and doing the right thing or if there's a low policy, if it turns out. But the moment it, it's clear that it's not going to resolve there, it's making sure that, that it quickly gets filed. And even before it gets filed, that all of the initial discovery that we want to do is drafted. And why do we do that? We do it so that the case gets served and then we pay the extra cost of serving as soon as we can after the complaint, all of our discovery and keep our foot on the gas. We want to be on our toes, not on our heels when we're doing litigation. And that's bringing the discovery to them. It's trying not to ask for extensions, meaning know that when the discovery comes to us, that we're going to receive four rugs, might as well have already drafted the responses. Absolutely. And that's where having a good client questionnaire and having a good team and having this all set up in advance so that you never have to ask for extensions and do our best effort to encourage the other side not to seek extensions themselves. And this starts getting into kind of the challenges of dealing with opposing counsel, where if you refuse an extension, you get all objections back. Are you really achieving the result that you want? But there are ways to kind of be kind and maybe give them a two-week extension, but tell them, you know, the next time if that happens, we're going to have some more challenges going on. But all of these are ways to keep applying that pressure and keep that timeline short so that you're not serving the summons and then waiting for them to send discovery to you. And, oh, yeah, I need to get around to sending some discovery out. If part of the requirement is all your discovery is drafted before you can file the complaint, that means all you have to do is hit send once once they've answered. Right. And uh, staying out in front of all these things ultimately keeps that client happy, which is the main goal here. And it also sends the message to the other side that they're going to have a fight on their hands. And... I've seen situations where a defense counsel or a carrier decides, oh, they're not pushing this ball forward. They're not really serious about this case. We're going to lowball them. And I've seen cases that have ended up in trial or where we've been called to help on a trial because that's been the attitude of the carrier. And it's not until you're starting to pick a jury that the carrier then needs to reevaluate things. 
And sometimes it's too late in terms of getting the right reserve set on the case. Right. While you talked about liens, there are some areas that I think that you do well in terms of making sure that the liens get wrapped up, in terms of making sure that the settlement agreements are are done quickly and that things go from resolution to disbursement at a speed at which a client doesn't call up and say, hey, you know, it's been yeah. four weeks, five weeks since you said my case settled. What's going on? That's a great point. This is the time where I feel like you have the most room to upset a client after doing a great job. There's nothing worse than, you know, resolving a case with a great result. The client's happy. The client, you know, even expresses that to you, says, you know, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And then you just say, hey, we're just going to wait on the check. We're going to tie up this lien piece and uh, then we'll disperse your settlement funds. And uh, hopefully we will be all wrapped up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, sometimes, you know, you might run into a hiccup where, oh, wait, I don't even have a notice of lien or, uh, you know, something like that. And that is the worst. This goes back to why you do the lean stuff all up front. Exactly. Yeah. Because you never want to run into this situation because then the client's like, wait a minute, I thought I was getting paid in two weeks. And now you don't know how much the lien holder is asking for. And so, you know, it, it can make things messy. And the last thing you want to do is have a good result and then leave a bad taste in the client's mouth when it comes to getting them the money that they're entitled to. And so, as I mentioned, I'm a pre-litigation case manager. A lot of what I'm doing is negotiating with insurance adjusters. And then before a case resolves, I go ahead and notify the lien holder, hey, we're in negotiations on this case. I'm hoping to have it wrapped up in the next few weeks. If you can go ahead and send me over a final lien, that'll be great. And either they'll send over a final lien or they'll say, well, this hasn't settled yet. So this is not technically final, but here's a semi-final lien, which 99% of the time becomes the final lien. But anyways, then I've got the final lien. So I know the the final number that we're going to be working with on the lien front. And then I will also, as we've got a settlement number in mind, I draft a distribution report to have that ready for the client because it has to be reviewed by all the internal people at our firm. So to have these things prepared in advance of settlement, so that way, once we have kind of all the numbers figured out, it's just a plug and play, you know, plug in the numbers, send them over to the rest of the firm, get approval. And then really it's just getting a release, getting a signature on it and saying, hey, lien holder, you know, here are my fees and costs. I'll take that reduction, please. And uh, tie it all up pretty quickly thereafter. But you have to be thinking about these things. And on top of it, you really do not want to forget about that lien. That is something. And I guess I say that because, and maybe forget's not the right word. This is fresh on my mind because I've been dealing with this with Medi-Cal. Medi-Cal sometimes doesn't care if we want to be efficient. Um, Medi-Cal has this rule where they will not provide a lien until either 120 days from the last date of treatment or 120 days from settlement. So... I had a case where a client was still treating and I took the client's case essentially and the damages were so severe that they tendered the policy right away and I immediately notified Medi-Cal, hey, policy has been tendered on X date and then I'm sitting here with the client's settlement funds in the trust account trying to figure out how much we have to pay Medi-Cal and they tell me we're not going to tell you for 120 days. And I said to the client, I'm sorry, that money, we're, we're pretty much waiting for four months. And sometimes you can find this information out through bills and things like this. In this particular situation, there was no way to figure it out. So it was just a perfect storm of a, hey, there's nothing we can do here. But 
That's kind of what I'm talking about. It, while that was there was nothing I could have done to better address that situation, you don't want to be in that situation because it's your own fault. Right. And it absolutely can happen. I've seen it happen. And um, that's what we try to avoid. One other little piece, it seems small, but has made such a big difference, is the challenge that insurance companies insist on sending checks still. And no matter how you tell them to have it made out in the settlement agreement, you know, Cooper's LLP in trust for John Smith. You know, that one you can deposit without a client signature. Yep. The Cooper's LLP and John Smith, you have to have the client endorse the check. So one of the things we learned is we have in our rep agreement the authority to negotiate on our client's behalf in terms of signing the check. And so we can sign it as Cooper's LLP as attorneys for, and that reduces, because I know some attorneys still do this. They will get the check, send it out to the client, have the client sign it, send it back. And the loss rate on these, probably one in 20, a check, you have an issue with it in terms of depending on, on how it is sent or how responsive your client is. This has been a game changer in terms of speeding up that process and also making sure that you don't have a loss issue in terms of having a check reissued. It's funny because I've gotten so used to it now that I, I'm just used to, I get an email from the folks in the office saying, these are the checks that were received today. They will be deposited uh, this afternoon. And that's just kind of how it's been. We always do ask the insurance company, please make the check out to Cooper's LLP and trust for John Smith. And like you said, yeah, 50% of the time, they don't. 50% of the time, they make it out to the previous firm name. It, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But eventually, we'll get the check. Sometimes we don't have the rep agreement where we have that in. So what we can do is we can email a copy of the check to the client and say, do you authorize us to deposit this check? And they'll say yes. And then what we can do is we can sign the check, Cooper's LLP, deposit their interest for. And it, just having that email is all we need. We don't have to take it to the bank or anything. The common theme I'm hearing is one wants to look for ways to reduce friction, reduce touch, reduce days, reduce delays. And the net result is a better outcome for the client and usually a better outcome for the firm because each touch, each delay increases the costs that go along with it. Absolutely. And um, I've found the cases that I've worked most efficiently on, the client is the happiest, I'm the happiest, everybody's happy. That's good to hear. Well, as always, Tim, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on how you make case handling more efficient. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.